Hi, welcome to Off the Charts. I'm Andy Smith, your host. I'm here with Emily Weber, who's our producer. Hello. Uh, today's podcast is a really interesting one. We actually sat down with Jennifer Simmons. Uh, she is a breast surgeon, chief of breast surgery, actually, at Einstein Medical Center Montgomery, which is uh, in suburban Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And we really had a wide-ranging discussion. It, it wasn't just about breast cancer. It was about the industry that has sort of sprung up around breast cancer, mm -hmm. like the, you were the PR, the marketing, the PR, save the, the tatas, save the tatas, yeah. uh, the t-shirts that say "Save Second Base," mm -hmm. uh, the pink blenders that she refers to <laughs> that are sold in Walmart. Yeah, and you know it's just interesting. It has you know breast cancer has better PR than any other cancer out there. Yep, and it was interesting to hear her um, her thoughts on that. And then we also talked about, you know, what it's like to treat breast cancer patients. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the, the most interesting stories was about how she treated her best childhood friend and what it was like dealing with the uh, father who of, of that friend who basically couldn't get past thinking of her as, you know, the neighborhood kid. Uh, now she's a doctor. Yeah. Um, she had a lot of good stories. It was, there was that one, and then we sort of ended on a very interesting story that wasn't breast cancer, but a different kind of cancer that she was um, she was kind of in the right place at the right time. Yeah. A really amazing story. Yeah. We won't, we won't spoil the story, but Emily's right. I mean, talk about the right place at the right time. Yep. I mean, she basically saved a life. Yeah. And, uh, so we hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Jennifer Simmons, enjoy. Here she is. talked to you before I was fascinated by your background and the story of it was your cousin right my cousin Linda Creed yes yeah yeah tell me about that I mean so you know I I was born in 1968 and my so parents oh wow. <laughs> so my parents were major music people and uh I remember listening to the music of the spinners and the stylistics and as it turns out, my cousin, Linda, wrote that music along with her writing partner, Tommy Bell. Huh. And from the time that I remember, which is like six, seven, eight, that, that age range, she was living in, in L.A. And she had this like big house with a yard that was as big as a football field. And that was like such a big deal. And you're in Philly, right? You're thinking, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, even, yeah, L.A., you know, it wasn't. It wasn't like the times now. Like LA was this whole big thing that you know normal people didn't get to see that. Normal right. people didn't get to do that. We didn't, we didn't travel then like we do now. Yeah, like, the yeah. world wasn't as mobile. It wasn't as accessible. There was no internet. We didn't see pictures of that all the time. <laughs> you, know, you know, you saw them like once a month in People Magazine or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's this huge big deal. And I remember just growing up to her music and loving her music. And then when she was twenty nine. She was diagnosed with breast cancer and it's insanely young and she died um, when she was 36 hmm. and I was 16 yeah. and she had moved home to be treated and it just, it had a huge impact on me. Like she had little, little kids and, you know, I, I had just gotten my driver's license. So yeah. You know, here I am, my, my cousin Linda's dad, and her her 
two little girls are adorable and you know we I would take them out for ice cream and you know that kind of thing and then my father ended up being involved with Epi her husband um and being involved in that in the music piece of things and so you know it was a huge part of my of my childhood yeah you probably looked up I mean even though you were 16, she was in her 30s. She was a rock star. Was a rock star. I mean, she yeah. was my rock star. Yeah, you know, yeah. that was that was the closest I would ever be. And, you know, going forward included, that's the closest I'm ever going to be to a rock star. Now, was that sort she of was a rock star. Kind of a first experience for you with death or that kind of disease? Um, you know, my grandfather died when I was seven years old, but, yeah, the, but that's, that's something that you don't, yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't comprehend it. Well, you expect your grandparents to die too. You do. <laughs> Absolutely. So that was certainly my first experience with a young person, someone who I could relate to, who I had a relationship with. I mean, she wasn't necessarily my peer. She was 20 years older than I am, but she it was relatable it, 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 and it didn't make sense. You know, that was the first death that, that I had been witness to that it was like, wait, wait, she's How a young person. Like, what? Yeah. This doesn't make sense. So. I'm curious what kind, I mean, obviously now you're treating breast cancer patients all the time. What treatments did she have back then? I mean, does it seem uh, um, ancient at this point when you look back? I mean, or? you know, not so much ancient as much as there just weren't she ran out of treatment options. Mm-hmm. Now we have, you know, our list is longer. Yeah. So she, she had what is comparable to a treatment that we offer now, okay. but then she hit the end of her line. Yeah. There wasn't anything else to try for her yeah. at that time. Whereas we have so many more options now. I mean, we still metastatic disease is metastatic disease. So if you get diagnosed with metastatic disease, you're still not going to win the battle, but the battle becomes a lot longer now. Yeah. 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 I'm curious. Uh, one thing as we were driving over here, we were talking about is when did she die? Do you remember, was it the early eighties or, um, she died in you were 16. You were yeah. In so she died in at 84. Yeah. What was the, I don't know quite how to say it, the PR around breast cancer at the time. You know, on the drive over here, Emily and I were talking about breast cancer has the best PR of anybody. And it's almost crossed over into pop culture. Save the tatas. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have T-shirts. Save second base. Mm-hmm. The bracelets. You know, I love boobies. Mm-hmm. What was it like then? I, I'm curious. Was it you know, very I, quiet back it was, then? It was still very quiet. It was still something that people didn't talk about. I mean, everyone knew that Linda had breast cancer, yeah. but I don't, I don't think we did very much talking about it. And I, I think that the tagline was that Linda's sick. Okay. I don't know that we necessarily said that Linda had breast cancer. Yeah. Because so, um, I always hear people, older doctors talk about how you didn't even say that. It was, mm-hmm. you were embarrassed if you had breast cancer for some reason back then. It just wasn't something that you talked about. It was like a little bit of that old superstition, like don't talk about it or it'll happen oh, to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like it's contagious or something like that. And, you know, people were, privacy has become an entirely different <laughs> thing. So you mean there is none? There <laughs> almost is no privacy no, now, except media. for like, 
you know, these preposterous things like when Hillary Clinton decides that she's not going to tell people that she has pneumonia. Like, you know, it's like a, a very selective privacy. Yes. You know, you'll make a sex tape, but then you won't talk about, you know, I mean, it, 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 this world is crazy and insane. But that world was very different. I mean, we didn't have the outlets for communication that we had then. So it was easier to have privacy then. But privacy was something that was very valued. You know, we created this whole HIPAA thing and made such a big deal about it. And yet people are out there like just leaving. Yeah, it's pretty funny, actually. We have HIPAA, these stringent uh, privacy rules for healthcare. But yet the same person will leave the hospital, post a picture of themselves yeah. on their Facebook but page. But naked, or, yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, or wholly inappropriate. But you can't say anything. Right. <laughs> At, or I have a $10,000 violation per, per incident. Yeah. You know, so it's, it, to me, it's just so nuts that people don't respect their own privacy, but we have to respect it for them. Yeah. But it, we digress. So <laughs> I, it was that was still during that time where... Things were private. Mm-hmm. On a related subject, though, since I brought up the things like the T-shirts and the ribbons and all that, mm-hmm. what do you think about that? Does it? I mean, oh, so I've a, I've struggled with this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, listen, from a like fashion, fun, all that kind of standpoint, I love it. Yeah. I love all the stuff. I love the nonsense stuff. I love the serious stuff. Like, I love it. I love it. I love the pink jewelry. I, I love it. And it certainly raises awareness. I mean, but does it? I don't know. I don't know how much it raises awareness. And the other, the flip side of it is, I have this whole concern about where is that money going? Mm -hmm. What is happening to those funds? What are they earmarked for? You know, I'm I'm cautious about all of it because it's it's kind of this like big vapid area of the money goes in and then what happens? That's an industry. I mean, it is, <laughs> it isn't an industry and it raises, I don't know how many millions and millions and millions of dollars. So where is my, my worry is the accountability mm-hmm. where, so I, I struggle with it. So I want to buy a pink blender. I really <laughs> do. I want a pink blender, but but what, why, why am I doing that? Well, that was another part of the question. Is there a point where it crosses over? What exactly does a pink blender have to do with what is really a serious problem? Right. So I mean, does it almost belittle the and, problem? Like I love boobies. You think that 14-year-old in middle school is wearing that because he really cares about breast cancer? Well, he probably does love boobies. <laughs> You know, I, I, I know when the two little boys that are that are eight and ten in this house get to be fourteen, they're gonna wear that I love boobies and mean it. I mean it. Um yeah, so of course it's become commercial and it's like uh it, for lack of a better word, like cool to care, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um but I think we probably have taken it too far and I'm just not sure that all of it. And I, I, there's probably a lot of people who have jumped on the commercialism and said, well, you know, I'll just make a pink shirt this year and we'll sell more of them because it's a pink shirt. 
We'll sell more of them in October and good for us. And, you know, maybe they will give a nominal donation to what I don't know. And, you know, so, and it's, it's very hard to, to track it, to keep, you know, to make sure that everyone's doing the right thing. You know, unfortunately human nature, greed, greed greed (laughs) does, you know, makes good people do bad things all the time, Mm -hmm. every day. Yeah. You know, as, what, what's your day like? I mean, the average person would say, gosh, it must be challenging or depressing to be a, a cancer doctor. Oh, so one thing my day isn't is depressing. Really? Because of all of our advances in breast cancer, and that's from our screening is so good, we're finding these little tiny things. Um our medicines are so good. We know a lot more about the nature of the disease, the behavior of the disease, and we can we, we can help plan and predict and treat accordingly. Um, and we also know a lot about making people feel better when their prognosis is not good. Sure. Most breast cancer is curable especially most early breast cancer is curable mm-hmm. and we're doing a really good job there. Do most so, women, when you tell them know that I tell them, or, that, though. yeah, I mean that Do they think they're a death sentence though. I'm sure in their mind, the first thing that they hear when they have breast cancer is I'm going to die. I'm gonna die. Yeah. Now everyone's going to die, <laughs> right? not necessarily of breast cancer. And oftentimes if we do things right and I get their buy-in and we treat them the way that they need to be treated and they go on from there and make some lifestyle changes and maybe tweak a couple of things in their life to go towards healthy living, most of my patients will live out their normal lifespan despite their breast cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And after all, that's my goal. And maybe, just maybe, improve their lifespan a little bit because say, like, listen, I don't care how you got to here. You're here. Yeah. Let's let's deal with this. And then let's put that in the rear of your mirror and make the rest of it a little better. You know, and it's kind of the it's it's the best that I can do, but sometimes the best that I can do is like better than what they were before, <laughs> which is really amazing. Most of my patients live. The vast majority of my patients live and they live changed. Mm-hmm. Now, not everyone has changed for the better, but a lot of them are. And a lot of them get some new understanding, some new insight, and they choose to change their own path. And yeah, I think when we talked, you were mentioning how amazingly strong some of these people are. Mm-hmm you know, what they go through and then survive it. Mm -hmm. They come out a different person, maybe a stronger person. Mm -hmm. Mm. And, you know, your your value sets change and things that were important to you yesterday may become unimportant tomorrow because your perspective is really affected. But what I do is incredible. I mean, it's a tremendous privilege. People charge me with their life. And, you know, they go to sleep in my hands. They know that I'm going to be opening them up and taking a look in a place that they'll never, ever see. 
And they, they let me do that. Yeah. And it's an amazing privilege that I'm blessed to have. But yet when we talked before, I think you said, I've never, I don't take credit for saving lives. You don't view yourself as saving lives. I don't. Yeah. But, but imagine that feeling of trust that, that people give to me. I mean, it, it, that's incredible. I, I didn't, whether or not they live or die, I'm kind of like the pass through. Mm-hmm. I'm not the determinator. So I help them in a way that I've been trained to do, just like you've been trained to do your job and you've been trained to do your job. I was trained to do mine. I'm not God. Yeah, you're not a miracle worker. (laughs) I can't provide any miracles. I mean, that's not what I can do. I can help you the same way that, you know, someone else would help you. Everyone needs help and everyone gets it from different places. So I don't credit myself for saving anyone's life, but I do credit myself for helping them get from point A to point B. And sometimes point B is you know, surviving this illness. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, point B is surviving this illness. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, it's, now it's we will an come amazing back to, place. You have saved one life you do take credit for. We'll oh, come back to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> That's I a did. good start. That yeah. I did. <laughs> You'll take credit for that one. So, and I'm curious, um, you know, people talk about yeah, all this research we've had, all these years, trillions of dollars of research. There's no cure. People seem obsessed with a cure. Is there a cure for it? Do you see that coming? Or is that going to be, will breast cancer be like asthma? You have it your whole life, but we can treat it and keep you okay. So my guess is that we're talking about the latter. We're talking about the eventuality of breast cancer being a chronic disease Mm -hmm. that we just continue to manage. You live with it. and Yeah. Um, and there are lots of women who are living with breast cancer as a chronic disease. And for some of them, that course is five years. And for some of them, it's 10 and some of it's 20. But there are, there are people whose, whose disease is a chronic disease. I don't think that we're ever going to find a traditional cure what people believe to be a cure of like an antibiotic or something along those lines it's not it's it's, complex right it is and it's such a heterogeneous disease it's not like breast cancer is this breast cancer is a spectrum of you know cell types that behave differently and incidentally mutate Mm-hmm. So once we've found something that's very successful that works in someone, the next thing we know, it's changing it's learned. and it's yeah. no longer, you know, responding to that treatment. And that's the problem. I mean, sadly, it's very smart. Breast cancer is also a disease that kind of has two arms to it. So there's a disease that affects young women and a disease that affects older women. And sometimes the young women get the old lady version of the disease and sometimes the old ladies get the young person Hmm. you know version of the disease the young version more aggressive or it tends to be more aggressive quicker growing more resistant to treatment so um you know it's not like we're talking about one thing and for partly for that reason we'll we won't find a cure anytime soon the other thing that it, a lot of cancers are a function of living longer. Yeah. 
And we are, despite the fact that Americans do not take care of themselves by and large. I mean, <laughs> our obesity rate, our, our diabetes rate. I mean, we live sedentary lifestyles. We eat garbage. I mean, it's just, it, it's astounding to me. But, you know, the average lifespan continues to increase. Well, we were just actually, Evelyn and I were just in a meeting this morning, and it was it was a financial guy talking. And I'm trying to remember the, the figures. He said the average person used to um, retire and flex Social Security for two years was the average, and then they died Right. at like 65. Right. They would retire at 62, die at 65. Mm-hmm. Now he says you retire at 62 and you live to your 85. Yeah, um, that's why the system doesn't work. It's so antiquated yeah. that it needs to it needs to be revised to reflect what our our now. I think a lot of people think about the fact that if you work to sixty five, you are entitled to enjoy your <laughs> golden years, and they don't think that that's going to be three years. Sure, they, they think it's going to be a lot longer than that, and they worked for a long time and they deserve to enjoy it, and. I agree. I mean, God bless. I agree. But the problem is financially it doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. You know, we need to find a formula that's more appropriate for our lifespan. So many of those healthcare dollars are spent in the last couple of years of most people's lives, if not months of their lives. Mm -hmm. It's true. Yeah. I've always thought it's interesting. Uh, Physicians, surgeons have such an interesting job. Other people go to an office, they develop relationships with their coworkers but that's about it in most cases. How do you, what are your relationships like with your patients? How do you separate your, how do you come home and just put that away and say, hi kids? Yeah. So sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't, yeah. you know, it's, it's not, you, you can't always. Um, you try to because my patients deserve a good doctor, but my kids deserve a good mommy. Yeah. My husband deserves a good wife. And so you have to try to compartmentalize, you know, it doesn't always work. I mean, I'm not going to tell you that I don't come home from a day where things did not go the way that I wanted them to go. And I was able to drop it all and put on a smile and be there for my family. Like there are some days where I walk in the door and I'm like, yeah, mommy didn't have a good one today. So we're just going to have to give mommy a little, a a wide, yeah, a wide girth today and, yeah. Hmm. Well, so, I remember when we talked, that was one of, I thought, the most emotional, not, maybe that's not the right word, how you said, I hope someday, because you give up a lot when you're a physician, mm-hmm, and especially sure. in, on call, in cancer realm, you hope that someday your kids understand maybe why you didn't come home exactly like mm-hmm. the other mommies did on a certain time of day. or Yeah, or don't pick them up from school. Yeah. Um, I'm not the lunch mom. That that is very unfavorable to not be the lunch mom. Apparently, um, you got a definite black mark. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, Do they understand how to care? You have an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old. Ten-year-old. So conceptually, I think that they understand that I'm a doctor. Yes, they understand yeah. that I help people. That I make them better. I mean, if someone's hurt, the first thing that comes out of my boy's mouth is. My mommy's a doctor. <laughs> She'll help you. Help him, help him, help him. Yeah. Um, 
they also continually ask me if I'm going to be the nurse again at camp. So I'm not no. sure how much of, um, <laughs> of what I do they understand. Um, but I don't, I don't think they understand the, um, the seriousness of what I do. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they understand the concept of death. Uh, the emotional part of it, they probably can't understand. They can't. So I don't I don't think they understand the importance of what I do. Yeah. So they equate it to other mothers that work that and you know, they somehow manage to do this and manage to do that. And so I I think that they don't understand yeah. you know exactly what it all means. What is your day like? I mean, I always say I've dealt with physicians for 25 years. So I've dealt with physicians for 25 years. The image that, say, the average person has with a physician is just not reality. The old used to be they golf on Wednesdays. They all drive fancy cars. It's a good life. It's actually a really difficult life. Yeah, in my it opinion. is. I'll tell you that when I um, when I went to medical school and I decided that I was going to become a surgeon, mm-hmm. I think my father like cried really? because he he said, you know, I worked so hard. Why why would you want to do that? Why do you want to work so hard? That was his reasoning that the the work is hard. He said, I I didn't work this hard so that my daughter would work that hard. I did. I never wanted you to have to work that hard. Hmm. I, I, there are way easier ways to go in medicine other than <laughs> surgery. I'll, I'll say that. But um, I was all about the reward and I liked fixing things in, in surgery. You get to fix things. Yeah, like you yeah. start with something that's broken and you fix it. It's awesome. My, my typical day starts off with me waking my, you know, pre-teenage <laughs> 10-year-old who already has the moodiness yeah, of a teenager, doesn't want to get up. So we have a fight almost every morning <laughs> um, and, you know, rush, 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 pack lunch, get them to the bus, and then off I go to work and... I think almost every working mother will tell you the same thing. It is so much easier to be at work than to be here. It really <laughs> is. Numerous times. I mean, you know, at work, at least I, I'm running the show. Yeah, you have you know, I don't, no one, I don't have to tell someone three times what I want done because I say it once and it gets done. I mean, <laughs> like it's an amazing thing. And I, I love the people I work with. I'm very well supported. And, you know, when well, we went to the electronic medical record two weeks ago, so that was a nightmare. Oh. But most of the time, like, you know how to do everything you need to do at work. And it, most of the time it goes perfectly well. Mm-hmm. And I am usually there till sometimes be, sometime between six and seven at which time I come home and then it starts again because invariably the homework isn't done. They've only just gotten home from soccer practice. They're starving. <laughs> and um, and then Albert 
usually works in New York. So mm-hmm. he rolls in around eight o'clock and we try to. Is it hard to review your day constantly once things settle down at home? I try not to. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of done talking by, by 8.30 at night when we've mostly concluded homework and it's time to go put pajamas on and brush our teeth, which incidentally is a surprise to my children every single night. That you actually have to brush That they have to brush their teeth. (laughs) Shocking. Um, So by that time, my husband is like full of energy. He could have a three-hour conversation at that time. I'm like, I'm done. done. I give him the hand. I'm like, this has to wait. I'm done. Like my brain is fried by the end of the day. Like it's shouting, I need to sleep and reset. But I'll take a bet. That you wake up every day. You love your job then, don't you? I do. Yeah. I do. I, I feel so lucky to be able to do what I do. I love my job. Mm-hmm. The administrative part of it is is not great for me. Um, I, I think there are some people that are really good at being doctors, but not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily translate to leaders in, in that administrative role. I don't, I don't love the administrative role. Um, well, my wife's a teacher and everyone asks her, why aren't you, you should be a principal. It's a whole different it, skill set. It, it really <laughs> is. You could be the best teacher in the school yeah. and a lousy principal because it's a totally different job. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and Do you wish you could just spend the whole day doing surgery? I don't know about the whole day doing surgery because I do like the, the relationship side of it. And that's what breast surgery really is like 50% psych and 50% surgery. I mean, it really is the perfect balance between the two because you still get to use your skills. You still get to fix things, you know, you still get to make things beautiful. Um, But on the other side of it, you are taking people through what is probably the most difficult time of their life, and you stay with them for their journey. Mm-hmm. And for some people, it's a very short journey. And for most people, it's years and years and years. I mean, I, I see my patients forever. I remember you also talking about um, early in your career, you treated your best childhood friend, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's still alive. Right? She is. Yeah. She's. Now she's you also mentioned great. that treating your parent. What was? How did you say it? Your parent. It was a no-no, right? Yeah. So the the biggest problem in treating. Should I say her name or not say her name? It doesn't matter. Well, someone she, you know. She knows who you, she is. Yeah. So the biggest problem with treating her is that her father, who only really knew me as a child and probably still has no ability to think of me (laughs) past a child because I was his baby's best friend. Much less a doctor. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So he had great difficulty talking to me like an adult, treating me like an adult. I mean, this was really challenging for him. And he is a very important man with a very big job and He's used to being in control. And so his lack of control over the situation, he was so uncomfortable with it that he would just scream at me. Hmm. 
And I would say to him, listen, I'll, I'll take that because I know how upset you are, but it's not, it's not helping anyone. I didn't do this. You didn't do this. She didn't do this. It just happened. And we're going to have to deal with the facts. And these are the facts. So she is one of those people where she is in that category of this is a chronic disease for her. She will always, always, always be on some kind of treatment. And that whether or not you want to accept that answer, whether or not you think it's an acceptable answer, that is, that is in the fact answer. the answer. <laughs> you can't change that. Yeah. So no matter how many times you ask me the question or say, you must be mistaken or what are you talking about? I'm going to tell you that that's it, that these are the, these are the facts. And he, yeah, it took him a while to come around and I'm not sure that he has entirely, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's very hard. Is anger a common, like what, I, I imagine you see the range of emotions. I do. Some people don't react. Other people get incredibly angry. I mean, what's the most common? The most common is what you would expect. The tears, the tuning out at times. Yeah, yeah, that's the most common. The patients that generally I worry about are the ones that are just blank, hmm. just devoid of emotion and you know that they're going to process it you just don't know when yeah i I recently had a patient who was a year and a half out from treatment and she came into my office for her follow-up visit and she just broke down she just said like i i just i never dealt with it i did everything you told me to do i went through treatment i just never dealt with it and i thought that i could get through it without dealing with it but everyone has to deal with it Um, The other group is the group that gets really angry and they're screaming at me and the husband's screaming at me or the best friend, or maybe they're not yelling, but they're talking in that very, you know, aggressive, aggressive kind of manner. Mm -hmm. And I say like, I know that you are not comfortable with the words that I am saying to you, but I have to say them. If you want to go and have a second opinion, go have a second opinion. I don't want you to go to get a second opinion with the expectation that you're not going to hear these words again. Yes. Because yeah. you're you're going to have to deal with these words at some point. But most people deal with the diagnosis exactly the way that you would expect yeah. them to. Are there harder patients for you personally to treat? People your own age, younger women, mothers, or is it? There's you know, no difference in who you gets. Know, you know, what's what's gotten so confusing is that for years I saw people my own age and I thought, God, they're so young for this diagnosis. And now the people that are my age are like. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're so young. <laughs> they're really quite average for this diagnosis. And that, that's been terrible for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I used to love it when I would walk in the room and they would say, you're too to be a doctor (laughs) thank you that's so sweet and now not as much much. and now like you know I have a 22 year old that I'm treating and I'm like God is so wrong Mm -hmm. so wrong like that's a baby they shouldn't have to deal with this I mean they're just barely figuring out who they are at 22 and to deal with a cancer diagnosis and 
we're freezing her eggs so that she can have babies later. And I mean, these concepts that like a 22 year old shouldn't have to deal with. Think about that. So, yeah. Do you worry about, I mean, I guess she was, Linda was your cousin. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that counts as in the family, if you're looking at the genetics. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Was there any other breast cancer? Is it something you think about personally? Oh, no. So of my grandfather's family, Mm -hmm. five of the nine women died of breast cancer. So this is a very real thing. I mean, we we are not mutation carriers in my family. Okay. um, But there's something because there's way too much breast cancer. So Linda's sister um, has metastatic disease. She's been living with her disease for 15 years now, I think. Um, and my mom's sister was diagnosed probably 10 years ago. Um, I've always been convinced that I was going to get breast cancer. I I, I don't know why. Um, My mom does not have breast cancer, and that probably speaks volumes as to whether or not it's going to come to, you know, our specific part of the family. But, but it's, it's, it's very close to us. I mean, you know, I share a lot of DNA with my aunt. Sure. So. And do you think about it a lot or is it? I don't think about it a lot. You do the usual precautions and you're around it all day. That's the interest. Uh, I, so listen, in my world, everyone has breast cancer, right? <laughs> That's right. I yeah. mean, everyone, everyone has breast cancer in my, in my world. So I do think about it. Patients ask me every single time. What would you do if it was you? What would you do if it was your mother? What would you do if it was your sister, best friend, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, it's always on my mind. Incidentally, my answer to them is what I would do for me is irrelevant to you. Let's talk about what's important to you mm-hmm. and make the decision that's right for you. Because my decision probably doesn't apply to you. Yeah. So, and that's actually a, that kind of a change in medicine in recent decades. I think most people would just say, tell me what to do or just do it. For sure. Now you actually. It's not as changed as you think, though. I mean, a lot of my patients are looking to me. They want you to just. They do. Make the decision. They want to know what's better. Hmm. And my, the person who trained me, my mentor would have told them straight out what he thinks they should do. Um, he was a very kind of paternalistic practice of medicine guy. Yeah, I, I don't see things that way. And, um, you know, there's, there's lots of versions of what's right because everyone has a different value system. So what's important to you may not be important to me, may not be important to you. Mm-hmm. And so we have to think about that all the time is that, Whatever decision I make, I'm not going to have to live with that decision. You're going to have to live with that decision. So why would I make the decision if you're the one that's going to have the consequence? Well, and in this particular field, you're not just dealing with the disease. You're talking about a part of the body that for most women is a very defining part of the body. So for most women, I wouldn't say it's the center of their sexuality, but it's It's pretty pretty high up there, (laughs) pretty high up there. Mm -hmm. And whether or not you think it's the center of your sexuality, the world certainly sees it that way. Sure. You know, we talk a lot about dealing with this disease 
privately and dealing with the disease publicly. Mm -hmm. And my goal is always to care for them in a way that they don't have to deal with the disease publicly unless they want to deal with the disease publicly, but let it be their choice. So let's preserve you in the best way that we can so that you can make the decision if you want to share that with the world. But I don't want it to be my decision as to whether or not you share that with the world. So I kind of want to end on the, uh, we'll come back to that. You claim you've never saved a life and then you backed up and said, no, wait, I have saved one. I'd love to hear that story when you were a camp doctor, right? Yeah. So it's a little bit of, if you build it, they will come. Okay. So my best friend said to me, I don't know what business you have going up and being the camp doctor. I mean, what they, a, a cancer doctor shouldn't go up and be the camp doctor. They need a pediatrician. Or, <laughs> and I said, I know I agree with you, but I did review the pediatrics book and I looked up all my rashes and I reviewed what eardrums look like and strep throat. And I, I got it. I got it all handled. How'd you get that job, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> so my boys went to camp there. Okay. I went to camp there for 10 years. Uh-huh. And so I thought, like, I would go up and relive my camp days and be the camp doctor. It's a total and utter disaster. <laughs> <laughs> I saw no rashes. Yeah. No, I memorized all those pictures of ears. No, I didn't have one ear pain. No one had strep throat. Our kids didn't cooperate. <laughs> so unbelievably uncooperative. So on the third day that I was there, a 10-year-old boy comes into the um, health center, and he was just hysterical. He had banged his knee on the rock wall, and I'm looking at his knee, and it's nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's not red. It's not bruised. It's not swollen. It's not anything. And he's like, my knee, my knee, and I'm looking at nothing. But above his knee is like uh, a lump, a swelling, but not like I bumped it swelling, like just a lump there. And I said, what is this? He's like, that's nothing that's been there. (laughs) I'm like, no. Didn't seem right. No, just nothing was making sense. He's hysterical. I see nothing in his knee. He's got this swelling. I can't make, if I can't make the story make sense, I know I need help. Mm -hmm. I said, Let's just send you for an x-ray. And the radiologist at the Pocono Regional Medical Center calls me about 45 minutes later. I hear a page overhead. Can can Dr. Simmons come to the phone? Yeah. I get on the phone and he says, I know you're not going to believe me because I am the radiologist at the Pocono Regional Medical Center. But this is an osteosarcoma, which is a very rare cancer of the bone. I said, I, I know what an osteosarcoma <laughs> is. I'm a cancer doctor. Now you're talking my language. Yeah. yeah. I was like, are, are you absolutely sure? He said, my, I, I did my um, residency at Jefferson, which is also where I trained. And my chairman said, you'll see this once in your career and you'll never forget it. And so I'm taking it. It's a very serious. It's a it's a very very serious rare cancer. And I said, email me the email me the pictures. And he emailed me the pictures. 
and I emailed them to my radiologist and to my orthopedic surgeon. And I said, I'm not holding you to it. Just tell me, what is this? And they both said the same thing. And I called the parents and I said, you don't have to believe me. You gave the same speech. (laughs) I know you're just thinking that I am the camp doctor and that's fine. Come get your son and go to Sloan tomorrow and just figure this out. And that was Tuesday. They came and got him. I think he was treated at Mount Sinai. They went to Mount Sinai on Wednesday and he started chemotherapy on Friday. And I saw a picture of him on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook, but my, my girlfriend sent it to me. He went up to camp this, this past summer Mm -hmm. to spend a day with his bunk mates and he's, he's doing great. And you said, I think when we talked before, if that hadn't been caught, he could have lost the leg. He could have lost his life, I guess. I mean, he most likely, he most likely wouldn't have survived it had, had, because, you know, he would have gone all through camp, presumably. That's another two months. Yeah, months. You know, this was the first week of camp. So, yeah, it was. uh, So one life saved there. That, that, that one I'll take credit for. You ever feel you were in the right place at the right time for that one? Oh, for, <laughs> that was divine intervention, yeah. for sure, which is why I won't go back and be the camp doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I've had enough done. of them. Yes. <laughs> one and done for me. Yeah. Of course, I spent the rest of the week rocking in a corner because, <laughs> like, you know, I've already reconciled. did that really happen? Yeah. And like, how crazy is this? And like, what am I doing? What did I bring on that kid? You know, like, crazy stuff. Yeah. But, you know, I've reconciled my breast cancer life. Like, I've already made sense of all of that in my head. And I, and I know how to deal with that. Mm-hmm. But a kid with cancer, a kid who's my kid's age. Yeah. I mean, like that, I don't know how to deal with. I was a basket case for a long time. I mean, I'm still teary thinking about it. Like, a basket case. I can't imagine what those parents went through. I, I can't. Yeah, you send your kid off to camp. You don't expect to get that, a call saying a week later. Has, a week later yeah. for something that had, I'm 100% certain, been there for months and months. Wow. So crazy, crazy. And you really were in the right place. That was you were the right person to be that camp doctor. Yeah. So the the guy that came up on Saturday and took over for me. Yeah. He was, he, so good luck. he had already heard the story okay. because you know, th- that world is small. Yeah. And he said, Jen, I got to tell you, thank God you were here because had it been me, I would have given him to Advil and told him to go back to his bunk. That's so I said you were the right specialist in the right place yeah. for that kid. Yeah. So I called my best friend. I said, and that's why a camp doctor <laughs> was an oncologist that week. <laughs> and then they'll go back to normal. So, yeah, but I'll, I'll be honest with you. Well, no, I shouldn't say that because his life was saved, but I think I would have rather had strep throat, you know, I mean, it's heavy. It's really heavy. It's a hard thing. That, that I could never do that world. I, that, that world I couldn't reconcile. You know, still, I, I deal with adults. And on some level, you can make sense of that in your head. Mm-hmm. Pediatric oncology, 
I can't make sense of that. Yeah, just it's very unfair. Yeah. It's just you know, it's against every every logical part of you. So, God bless those people that do that, because yeah, I know I'm not strong enough. This is a great ending. <laughs> I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you so this much. Was a great talk. Yeah, great. Right. It was fun. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Off the Charts, stories from people who make medicine work. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast or rate us or write a review. That will help other people find the podcast. To get in touch with Andy or me, email offthechartspodcast at gmail.com or send us a message through our Facebook page. Just search for Off the Charts Podcast. Be sure to check back often for new episodes. Until next time, take care.